great day to uh, celebrate in lots of different ways. And I think of, you know, Fourth of July weekend and for how much we need to be thankful in terms of just the freedoms that we do have and and uh, as God has given us the ability just to come together and worship like this. And uh, we just give thanks for that um, in what he has done for us. But this weekend really is marked by just so many different types of celebrations and, and people coming into the communities for fireworks, um, lots of travel this weekend, uh, parades, um, even up here, many people coming up to their cabins and traveling up here. A, a very important uh, holiday and vacation time for people around the country. But the text today, we need to understand this. Is By the way, you can turn in your Bibles to Mark uh, chapter 11. But the text for this week, this is an incredible important week for the nation of Israel. This was the Passover week that we jump into today. And just think with me a moment, if you were in a family back then, 2,000 years ago, this was the holiest of all holidays. And the tradition was is that families would walk to Jerusalem, understand no cars, no trains, no buses, and they could literally come from 15, 20, 30, 40, 50 miles. They would take the whole family and they would walk toward Jerusalem and there would be every path would be filled, every road would be filled, and lots of different people coming together to remember now, a part of that remembrance was also a sacrifice. If you, if you have any biblical background, there's a sacrifice that was required at the Passover, and it pointed all the way back to Israel when the Israelites were in Egypt. And all of a sudden, you understand that God worked a miracle there, and they were taken out of Egypt, and they went to the Promised Land, to this new place that was to become their home and their nation. And they would, but this was a symbol, the symbolism of that is that they would need a lamb. And so the family would either carry a lamb with them or they would buy a lamb at the, in Jerusalem to sacrifice, to remember what God had done. But just think, imagine that city. Um, they, they estimate that Jerusalem was somewhere around 30,000 people on a normal uh, day. And Passover, they estimate that it would grow to about 250,000 people. And you look at that and you go, people everywhere. That's like Grand Rapids going from, what are we, about 10,000 here? Think if we swell to 80, 90,000 in, in a weekend and what that would look like even for us in terms of, you'd want to own a restaurant and a gas station at this point, but the dynamics of the city would change. And that's what happened in Jerusalem as well. But on top of that, one of the distinctives of this Passover is that the most famous man, there were rumors of that the most famous man in Israel might be there, Jesus. And so that week, people were expecting maybe they could get a glimpse of, the, of this person that healed people. Just earlier, he had raised Lazarus from the dead, and it spread through the countryside. People knew this name, Jesus, and they associated it with healing and with all kinds of miracles, and this man might be there. The intensity of that week would have been really high. 
Let me, let's read the text here for this morning. Chapter 11, verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which, is, which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why, do you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went their way, and they found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing, untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it and sat on it. And they, many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who were following were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. See, this was the start of Passion Week. And beginning with this, it would have been Sunday, beginning with Sunday, you understand it's named, we call it Palm Sunday, but this would have been when they're throwing those branches in front of them to symbolize that somebody important is coming. But this is the final week before he goes to the cross. And you have to understand one of the things. Chapter 11 marks a change in Mark. Chapter 11 really grinds to a halt. See, from 1 through 10, that first 10 chapters covered three and a half years of the life of Jesus. And starting with chapter 11, through the end of the book, it covers approximately eight days. So as we go over the next couple of weeks, you're going to see over and over, this is an intense week here. But this passage also has a prophetic event that's written through numerous Old Testament passages, but Jesus again directed them to get a colt. Now understand that that was the colt of a donkey, okay? And Matthew tells us and Luke tells us that. But they, it was probably Bethphage. You go in and they get this colt for him to ride. Um, and, and Matthew tells us also there was actually two. The mother came with this colt, or they probably wouldn't be able to ride it. But we need to catch the significance of this event, of this cult. See, if Jesus would have come in, for example, on a horse or a big stallion, that would have meant, that, have meant something very different than coming in on a donkey. It would have meant that he was coming in as royalty, as king, as, frankly, with power as well. And the potential they were looking at, if you would have come in, they would have said, oh, he's got other armed forces with him, in back of him, and he's coming into the city. But here he comes in, not on a stallion, he comes in on a donkey, humble, a lowly animal, demonstrating his humility, that, that just the humbleness of who he was. But here's what we need to remember. This crowd that cheered him, that were clapping, that were celebrating his coming into the city. There were many different kinds of people and that were, they, were, they had lots of different beliefs about Jesus and who he really is. See, the attitudes about Jesus were all over the place. But you got to hear me here. Many of those people didn't get it. Even though they're celebrating, singing Hosanna, 
many of them missed even the significance of him riding on a donkey coming into the city. And the religious leaders who knew the scriptures, they should have known it and they missed it. Let me show you Zechariah 9.9. It shows this. Rejoice. Here's a prophetic verse. Greatly the daughter of Zion shout. The daughter of Jerusalem, look, your king is coming to you. He is legitimate and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, on a young donkey, the fowl of a female donkey. There, Zechariah had, had taught about the idea that Jesus was coming on a donkey. And the religious leaders who would have known this text, they didn't get it. But Jesus here, he wasn't hiding anymore. In one sense, it symbolizes coming out, and he's gonna, there's going to be clashes here. We'll see that in the weeks ahead. But he doesn't hide. He comes openly, showing himself to the people of that city. And then almost a coronation-type coronation event, and, and these people adored him, and they were passionately singing and worshiping him. Now, we have an advantage because we know the end of the story. We have the scriptures for us, so we have a complete understanding of that. But understand this, remind you of this. By the end of the week, some of those people who were clapping, singing, Hosanna, they were, by the end of the week, there was, they were shouting, but it wasn't Hosanna, it was crucify him. Crucify him. And the question is, what happened? What changed in the hearts of people where many of that crowd were believing, here's the king of the Jews, and all of a sudden they're going, crucify him. Why did they flip in their attitude toward Jesus? Now here's where i got to point out the reality. And if you're following along in the sermon outline in the notes, I said it this way, this key issue here, people, can claim to love and adore Jesus and still miss the biblical Jesus. And I got to say, in 2016, that is also true as well. There are countless people who acknowledge that Jesus is real, but they don't know the gospel. They don't understand the biblical Jesus, what his real purpose in this world is all about. And back then as well. You think of the religious leaders of the day. They didn't get it. And when one reads the Old Testament, you find, and this is true as well, I think it's human nature and our flesh, but the flip-flop of following Jesus and then all of a sudden they're following God and then not following God. All of those things taking place at the same time in the life of Israel. See, there's a consistency. Do we know what Jesus is really about. But that's also true if we want to admit it for the disciples as well. We've been following the disciples all through this journey in Mark. And remember even last week, Jesus revealed that he was going to go to the cross. He described the scorning, the whipping, what was going to take place. And the disciples almost immediately turn around and say, uh, Jesus, can we sit on the right and can we sit on the left in your glory? And they began to argue about who was the greatest. And we look at those people and look at the disciples and you go, man, they just didn't get it, did they? But here's, I think, the challenge for us. Do we really understand that as well? Might we be more like a disciple than we want to admit that are really ignoring what Jesus is all about? 
See, what did these people believe about Jesus? That crowd that was praising him, what were some of their real beliefs? And today, in our culture, what do people believe is the purpose of Jesus? If he came back today, See, the reality, even in churches like ours, people can, listen to this, we reform in our minds, we get a picture of a Jesus that might be different than a biblical Jesus. And the reason we do that, we re-image Jesus, is that we make a Jesus that's easier to follow, less threatening to us. But let me point out some what some people believe in that crowd, and I think it applies here to us today. That first bullet door, what do people want from Jesus? I said it this way, people want a Jesus that will help them out of the hard times. Now, he does. But this is kind of the only reason why they would follow Jesus. See, in that crowd, recognize in that crowd, throwing the branches down, Wanting a king. But they wanted a king that would lead them out from under the rule of the Roman government. See, for them, some in that crowd praising him, the king is here, but in their back of their minds they're going, Jesus is going to overthrow the shackles of the tyranny of Rome. Because you understand the way they thought they knew, and which is true, they had a blessed nation. They were God's people. They were told that the scriptures communicated that. And how can God's people be under the rule and the reign of Rome? So they were looking for a Messiah, a king, that would change and, and take them out from under the tyranny of the Roman Empire. The crowd didn't get it. But I wonder if that's a little bit us as well. When you come to 2016, don't we also believe this? You know what? United States, we're a blessed, special country. Isn't God supposed to, Jesus supposed to change so we go back to our roots? That we're blessed nation? Isn't he supposed to get rid of the moral decline in our country? But see, I think many times we think that's the reason Jesus would come back. See, do you believe that the real purpose of Jesus is to restore the United States to its former pro, you know, its status before? Is that what Jesus is really all about? Do you understand? Even back then, they were selective on the scriptures that they looked, their lenses as they looked at Jesus. They loved looking at the scriptures that talked about the Messiah. They loved the prophecies coming back. Here's going to be a king. And, and in that culture that day, they would apply it to, yeah, he's going to take away the Roman government. He's going to deal with it. But what they failed to look at is some of the other texts. Isaiah 53 talks about a king coming and suffering and dying. But is that the kind of Jesus we want? Jesus, get us out of the hard circumstances. Jesus, you're supposed to get rid of the suffering and the trials of life. And, and folks, that is not a biblical Jesus. 
See, so many people teach it. If, if you try harder, he owes you a blessing. He's going to make you wealthy. He's going to make you healthy. And everything's going to go smooth in life if we just do our part. Uh, let me remind you of one verse that speaks differently to that. Look at James 1, verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. When turmoil comes into your life. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Do you realize that hard times, things that are difficult in our lives, it pushes us to a new level of faith, new level of walking with the Spirit of God. He wants to use those things those things to change our hearts and our lives. But there's another kind of Jesus, I think, in this crowd as well, and I think it, it's where people want this today. The second bullet there in your outline, they want a Jesus as a personal therape therapeutic Jesus. See, living in this world is hard, and there's really ugly things going on around us. And we look at the world like this, and I think the temptation is to do this. Let's build a moat around our homes. Let's not trust anybody. Let's put our fingers in our ears and turn off the TV and the internet and huddle up in Christian families and let's circle the wagons as a church. And then let's ask Jesus to reassure us that everything will turn out okay. That's a therapeutic Jesus. See, when bad things happen, we immediately tell ourselves that it's okay. Matter of fact, I think we use a phrase that's true, but we've turned it into a cliche. And the cliche is this, God's in control. God's in control. And, and we, we use that as kind of a mantra, and we figure out, and we huddle up, and then, well, because I made that statement, I really must have a, a big faith. But we stay in our holy huddle, we hold our hands, and we sing God is in control, and we pat ourselves in the back that it's a real faith because we know God's in control. Now, let me point out, I believe God's in control, okay? But something is missing in that attitude, and I think it can be so subtle because I think what we want is a Jesus that comes along and reassures us, Ken, it's okay. It's okay. It's like taking a little dose of Prozac Jesus. Can I numb the pain and not feel the fact that this world is broken and hard? And if, I think if we're honest, we, and if we thought about it a bit, maybe that isn't the faith that we really need. See, what if that kind of faith is actually helping us pull back and detach from the world? What if that faith, God's in control, now I don't have to care anymore about the world and about, quote, those people out there? See, what if that kind of faith keeps us from living out the Great Commission to go and make disciples? What if that belief keeps us from knowing people in this world that need Jesus? They need to know a biblical Jesus. See, I don't believe that Jesus meant for us to stay in a holy huddle that effectively keeps us from sharing the love of Christ with this world. 
any pain wants to pull us back, pull us away from what God wants us to become and what, what he wants us to do. Do you realize that when the early church was birthed, in Acts when it exploded onto the scene, that they had to figure out what it meant to live in a fallen world that was more growing more and more difficult. It didn't get easier for them. It got harder for that early church. But what if we just are telling us God's in control so we don't want to care? I I need to give you a snapshot, not from Mark, but from the book of Luke that's included in this account. This is the same time period. He's heading into the city of Jerusalem. He's approaching the city. Now, there's a little bit of debate on the timeline. Is this incident taking place on Palm Sunday, or is it taking place when he goes into the next day, he goes back in on Jerusalem on Monday? People aren't quite sure, but look how it reads anyway. Luke 19:41. When Jesus came near the city, He cried as he saw it, even there, he wept. And he said, if you had only known on this great day the things that make peace, but that peace had nothing to do about the Romans that were killing them. But now they are hidden from your eyes. The time is coming when those who hate you will dig earth and throw it up around you, making a wall. They will shut uh, you in from every side. They will destroy you and your children with you. There will not be one stone, one on another. Look at this last phrase. It is because you did not know when God visited you. Do you catch the real Jesus here. He's looking over a city and he's praying and he's he's talking to his father, but he is caring for those that don't get it. He's mourning the fact that their chance to recognize that God had visited them, it was passing them by. And it's also a prophetic word here as well he's saying israel or jerusalem you will be destroyed and the people within that city will be destroyed because you did not recognize that god had visited you do we catch that but there's one more type of jesus i believe that we're in that crowd as well And that third bullet, it's like this. A Jesus that had no authority. That's what people want. They want a Jesus that doesn't have authority around him. And here's where I want to show you, again, another another portion from Luke's version of this on, on Palm Sunday. This is a triumphal entry. Luke 19, look at verse 36. As Jesus was going, they put their coats down on the road, and Jesus was near the city and ready to go down the Mount of Olives. The many people who were following him began to sing with loud voices and give thanks for all the powerful works that they had seen. They said, Great and honored is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. There is peace and greatness in the highest heaven. Folks, this is an enormous parade of people following him. But look at verse 39, some of the proud religious law keepers who were in among the people said to Jesus, Teacher, 
Speak sharp words to your followers. And Jesus said to them, I tell you that if these did not speak, the very stones would call out. Do you, do you catch and realize the objection that these teachers or these followers, religious law keepers, were telling Jesus? They're saying this, these people that praise you, stop them. Make them quit. Make them stop saying that you're the king of the Jews. See, these religious leaders were repulsed and they couldn't acknowledge that he was God and he was from God and that he had authority over this world and even their lives. But you notice they called him teacher? They couldn't say king, they couldn't say lord, they couldn't say the son of David. They gave him some credit for being a teacher, but it was void of any authority. And, and here's where we translate that to 2016. Isn't that true for people in our culture today? Jesus is a good prophet. He's an inspiring teacher. He's looking to unite all the people so we can all get along. Jesus is to come and set us free so we, we can be who we want to be and marry who we want to marry and whatever, all the complete freedom with that. Folks, the religious leaders didn't care about his miracles that showed his divinity and his authority. They didn't care that he had authority over the demonic world away from me and the demons had to, had to be gone. But isn't that true for people today? They don't care. And the unfortunate part, it can be a church like this where there's some people in a church going, Lord, I don't really care about your authority. See, many people think that this book is just symbolic. It has nothing to do with the authority of Jesus. You see how people want to make Jesus in their own image. I, I think what they really want is a Mr. Rogers Jesus, is what they really want. Not offending anyone. Not having any kind of authority over their lives. They just want to live life the way they want it. But catch the force that as he replies to these religious leaders, he's functionally saying these people, what they're saying is true. I'm God and listen. And the strength of those words, I tell you guys, if these people that were saying Hosanna and saying I'm the king, if they wouldn't say it, the rocks would call out and say it and reveal who I am. I suspect they were taken back. It doesn't say their reaction, but I'm convinced that they were taken back at that moment and they weren't all too happy with Jesus. But what's the consequence for us when we have a Jesus where we don't want to submit to his authority? And how does that apply to us? These chief priests and these religious rulers, do you understand at the core of who they are, this was rebellion against God. And here's where I need to finish it around this topic here because I need to dig a bit because realize there really is two kinds of rebellion in this world. And for your notes, I said it this way. The first one, there's, there's a childishness and a relational rebellion that can take place. But the second one, there's a willful rebellion. 
And, and let me explain the childish one uh, this way. You know, we have two kids, and I, I admit to you that uh, uh, they rebelled at times against our authority, okay? Uh, matter of fact, think of uh, making cookies. Uh, Deanna made some great chocolate chip cookies over the years, and, and she'd put them on the table to cool down after they came out of the oven. And, and what if she said this, uh, Andy, Bethany, don't touch those cookies. They got to wait till later. And, and so Deanna leaves and goes into another room, and, and a little while later, Bethany comes in, and, and there's lots of chocolate chips in them, and, and you look at her mouth, and his chocolate is running down her cheek. And, and as a parent, once you do this, Bethany, did you eat that cookie? Now, you have to understand, my son and my daughter's personality are very different. Bethany was one that would go, She'd start crying when, yes, I took that cookie. She would, and Andy would blame his sister is the way he would do it. But, but, but understand, there was, there's, there, there's a level of all of a sudden where they begin to realize mom and dad had authority and we violated it. We violated that authority. But understand this, it in the, it's in the context of a relationship. So here is... A parent, and yes, our children rebel, but there's a relationship that holds that bond together. And so even rebellion looks a bit different, but ultimately in our relationship with God, we recognize that, that God doesn't just cast us out. He wants to work in us in that rebellion. Matter of fact, when we fast forward to just a couple days to Friday in the life of Christ, remember Peter in Passion Week? Jesus looked at him at one point. He said, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter goes, no, I'll never do that. Never, never, never. And all of a sudden, you know, he's watching his Lord being questioned and and. The, the process of heading to the cross is immediate, and, and Peter denies him three times. And remember what happens at that point. Peter begins to weep. He runs away. He knows that he had sinned against Jesus. There was a grief in that sin. But here's the, the beauty of that picture. Jesus wasn't done with Peter he restored him. He brought him to a new place. He used that, even that rebellion, to take him to a new level in his faith. And he became one of the foundational pieces that built the early church. But see, the, the, if we are a child of God, understand as we rebel and we will do that, I, I don't deny that I've done it and I still will do it, but there's a place where Jesus wants to restore us to that relationship, back to that relationship. Matter of fact, I, I'd even go farther. If we, he, I, I think a lot of times Jesus waits and then at times he'll step in and say, okay, I'm going to help you. And I want to put a passage where he helps us. He, he restores us even after we rebel against him. Hebrews 12, 5, and it says this, and I have, have you not forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? This is, there's a relationship. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. The Lord can, Jesus can reprove us. 
Verse 6, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastises every son whom he receives. You see, if we are a child of God, he keeps working at restoring us, pulling us back. And that is really good news. But I got to point out something else here. There's that second kind of rebellion here. And it's a rebellion that has nothing to do with relationship or a parental relationship. It comes down to a willful and obstinate and a hard heart. And some in that crowd were there. You see, they saw the healing miracles, but they just didn't want to come under his authority. Now here's where I want to take you to a passage in Romans. Because understand, God deals differently with the one who has a relationship with himself than he does with one who has none. Romans 1.19, look how it reads. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. What does that passage say? It says this, is that people are created with an understanding that there is a God out there who has authority even in our, their lives. But people choose because of the hardness of their hearts to not honor him, not give thanks to him. They do not want to submit to him. Do we catch that? That is willful rebellion. But look at Romans 1.18, another one that fits right before verse 19. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. See, they know the truth. Deep down, they're going, there's a God, and he has authority, he has power, but they, I don't care, I'm going to do whatever I want to do, and that unrighteousness begins to suppress the truth all around in their lives and even trying it to suppress it in other people's lives. They know God, they won't honor him, they won't give thanks to him, and they surely will not submit to Jesus being God and his authority. And the result, folks, is a wrath of God where there will be judgment that, that will last into eternity. See, that's a willful rebellion. And these leaders are going, Jesus will acknowledge you as a teacher. But please don't think that you have authority or that you speak for God himself. You see the stubbornness of their hearts. And you still see the picture of Jesus weeping for those people who are stuck in that kind of rebellion. But let me end with a question. Which group are you in? Have you been united with Christ through faith? And if you are, I would encourage you to this day, wherever you're at, begin to press into that relationship with Christ. Give your affections to Jesus. 
If you've grabbed authority away, give it back. Give it back. It'll taste good by giving it back. And I'll warn you, yeah, he may have to discipline you. But he does it because he loves us. See, he's, he waits first oftentimes, but he, the goal for him is he wants to restore us back into a life-on-life relationship with his son. And he wants us to feel, forgi- to feel that we're forgiven and knowing for a certainty that we are. But you might not be in that category. And I'd say this, if you're stuck in the other willful rebellion where you've never bowed your knees to Christ, my hope is that the Holy Spirit is beginning to knock on your door, on your heart there, and they'd say he wants you to open up his life and that you would taste of the goodness of God and that Jesus, and this is the week that we see that in in history that he died for you. He paid the penalty for your sin. But don't get stuck saying, he's a nice teacher, he's a nice man. Yeah, it might be a nice idea to follow him. I, I go, man, be careful. And if God is calling you and saying, give up authority to my son, would you do that today? Don't wait. Don't wait. Who is Jesus to us today? Is he a therapeutic one? Do we see we do? Do we know the real biblical Jesus in our lives? If you know him as Lord and Savior, search the scriptures. Don't bypass all the verses. Jesus wants us to be with him, to follow him, and even to submit to his authority in our lives. Let's stop and pray. Why don't you stand with me?